Hi everyone, I'm David Green, Managing Partner for the Insight 222 People Analytics Programme. Welcome to Episode 1 of Series 15 of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. As Ron Feedman, my guest on this week's episode, explains, we've been taught for generations that there are two ways to succeed, either from talent or practice. The latter popularised by Malcolm Gladwell in his book Outliers. In his new book, Decoding Greatness, Ron describes a third path, one that has quietly launched icons in a wide range of fields, from artists, writers and chefs, to athletes, inventors and entrepreneurs, and one that can be applied widely to learning in the workplace, the path of reverse engineering. Ron is a social psychologist whose main focus is on helping people succeed faster. He is a frequent contributor to publications like Harvard Business Review, Psychology Today and Forbes. Ron's first book, The Best Place to Work, The Art and Science of Creating an Extraordinary Workplace, which we also discuss in our conversation, was named a Business Book of the Year by Inc. In our conversation, Ron and I discuss the differences between learning through talent, practice and reverse engineering. We look at how to harness the power of reverse engineering and boost your career. We analyze why the three key psychological needs of autonomy, competence and relatedness are at the heart of employee engagement and performance. Ron provides some top tips on how to learn and acquire new skills. And we also look at how to optimize for workplace relationships and work environments in a hybrid future. This episode is a must listen for anyone interested or involved in creating a culture of performance and continuous learning. So that's business leaders, CHROs, and anyone in a people analytics, culture, learning, employee experience, or HR business partner role. This series of the Digital HR Leaders podcast is sponsored by AG5. AG5 helps clients visualize and close their skills gaps. But how? By clearly mapping their workforce's current skills and tracking progress against business requirements to get their organization ready for the future and stay compliant. With AG5 skills intelligence software, you can create clear cross-company skills matrices and dashboards within a centralized skills hub integrating data from other HR and learning tools. Moving away from unmanageable spreadsheets, AG5 provides clear, concise and audit-proof skills matrices that make workforce management easy and convenient. To learn more, visit ag5.com. That's letter A, letter G, 5.com. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Ron Friedman to the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. It's great to have you on the show, Ron. Can you provide listeners with a brief introduction to you and your work? Sure. I'm a social psychologist and I study top performance. And my first book was called The Best Place to Work, The Art and Science of Creating an Extraordinary Workplace. And my new book is called Decoding Greatness, How the Best in the World Reverse Engineers Success. And when I'm not writing, I lead a company called Ignite 80. And it's called Ignite 80 because over, as you know well, David, uh, over 80% of employees are not fully engaged at work. The mission of Ignite 80 is to reverse that trend by teaching leaders science-based strategies for elevating performance and improving people's health, happiness, and engagement. And that's great because I, I when I looked up before we spoke, why it was Ignite 80 and it piqued my interest. And then I saw that and, uh, and actually our company, Insight 222, has also got a, a uh, sort of reason for the 222, which is it's the average number of working days 
across the top 25 OECD countries a year. And we help, similar to you, we help organizations provide more insight for using data for the 22 days, 222 days a year people work. So nice bit of synergy to, to start our conversation there. Um, we're going to certainly dig in a lot into to, to the work around decoding greatness, which I know has just come out, um, you know, and, and really good book as well. And I think towards the end of the conversation, we'll touch on on some maybe looking at the the best place to work in the current context around hybrid workplaces as well. It'd be great to get your thoughts around that. So, so let's start with decoded greatness. You know, it's just it's just come out. Can you give our listeners a, a brief introduction to the book? Certainly. Well, I'll start by telling you a little bit about my first book because it connects. So the first book, The Best Place to Work, took over a thousand academic studies and translated them into plain English so that regardless of whether you are an executive, an HR leader, or just someone starting out, you have access to the latest science and have it translated into plain English so that you know how to apply it to either developing a great workplace or to, to elevating your performance at work. But there was something missing from that book. And what was missing is that even within the best workplaces, there is a range of performance levels. Some people are top performers, others are not. And I was curious about that. And so what I decided to do for this book was to delve into some of the biographies of genuine top performers, people like groundbreaking artists and amazing writers and and business titans, and to, to look at what is it that they're doing differently. And what I discovered in doing that research is that the stories that we've been told about success are wrong. There are two basic stories that we've been told over the years. The first is that greatness or high-level performance or success comes from talent. And so from that perspective, we're all born with certain innate strengths. And the key to finding your greatness is just finding a, a field that allows your innate strengths to shine. The second story is that Greatness comes from practice. And this is the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours idea. The, the notion that if you just practice hard enough, you have enough discipline to do this for 10 years, eventually you will become great. But there's a third story about success and greatness. And it's one that people don't often talk about, yet it is the path by which a remarkable number of high performers achieve their greatness. And that path is mastering a skill that few people have heard of. And uh, yet it is one that is absolutely vital, particularly in today's economy, and that is reverse engineering. And reverse engineering simply means finding the best examples in a field and then working backward to identify how they were created and how they can be recreated in a novel context. And I can give you examples of what the, of how to apply reverse engineering, but that is the general idea, which is that rather than looking for your talent or practicing for far longer than is reasonable, I would argue, and also risky because by the time you've mastered the thing you've been, you're practicing for 10,000 hours, it's, the economy has moved on to something else, reverse engineering, uh, incorporating learning into everyday life by taking a, a outstanding examples, working backwards to figure out what is it that makes this unique. Okay, so let's, let's dig into reverse engineering. I'm going to move away from the script straight away, um, and we'll come back to it. But um, so, yeah, so bit more detail about reverse engineering and then maybe some examples. I think that's great because that will re that obviously brings it to life straight away. Okay. So just to just to, to reiterate, reverse engineering is just finding examples of the best in the field and working backwards to figure out how they did it. So in Silicon Valley, this idea of reverse engineering is very well known. People like Steve Gates and, and uh, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs have been, this is how they established their organizations is that there is a, is a tremendously long history of coders identifying winning products and then working backwards to, to identify how they were created. So this is how we got the laptop and the mouse and uh, even the iPhone. Uh, it's all about reverse engineering. What's less well known is that reverse engineering also explains how people like Malcolm Gladwell 
and Stephen King learned to write, how Claude Monet became a groundbreaking artist, and even how Judd Apatow became one of the most successful comedy minds of our generation. And studying the best in the field turns out to to be a lot more common than anyone realized. And, um, you know, there's a range of strategies for how to apply this. Uh, It really depends on your particular field. Uh, I'll give you some examples. So you're you're a nonfiction writer. You probably know this. Nonfiction writers will often uh, flip right to the back of the book to look at the endnote section to figure out what are the sources that went into creating this. Um, there, there's examples of chefs ordering, uh, and I talk about this in the Code of Greatness, where chefs will order food to go and place a complex sauce on a white plate and spread it out to identify the ingredients. And sometimes there's a magnifying glass involved. Um, photographers will look at images in a very particular way. Most people who are, who are you know, photography novices like, like me will look at the object when they look at a photo. But a photographer, a trained photographer, will look at lots of other things like the shadows, which tell you where the light source was placed, the reflection in the subject's eyes, which can tell you the, the, the location of, of, the, of the light source. And so the critical thing really is not to passively enjoy experiences, but to consistently think, how was this created? What can I learn from this? And how can I apply this to a project that I'm working on? So suppose it's like breaking down the constituent elements, the, art, the, uh, the example you gave there in the photograph, you know, the light, the shadow and everything else. And it's thinking mm-hmm. about how someone that's best in class or a leader in their field has actually done that and put those pieces together into that jigsaw and learning learning from that rather than as you said trying to master something for 10,000 hours which sounds exactly. an inordinate amount of time and you know I've just given you a range of examples of all these diverse fields but you know just to make this concrete for the for the digital HR leader you know this this applies to, to how a well-written memo is constructed it applies to how a deck is constructed it applies to how you write a TED talk all of these things are examples that I talk about in my book deconstructing what are the constituent parts and then how do you uh, apply those to whatever it is you're working on and we're gonna I, I'm sure touch on is this copying because I'm happy to to, to have that debate. Um, but I, I just think that it's so long overdue for people to realize that this is how those at the top are figuring things out. They're not waiting to be taught by an instructor. They're not taking courses. They're not going to conferences necessarily, probably doing all those things as well, but they're actively learning every step of the way. Yeah. Yeah. Which is obviously so relevant in today's workplace where lifelong learning, upskilling, hugely popular topics for organizations, I'd say a and, and actually not just for people in, in my field, in HR, but for CEOs as well. They're constantly thinking about this constant challenge around skills. So to, to why do you think skills and lifelong learning have become so important and urgent for organizations? And, and how can people use reverse engineering in, in that context? Yeah. So I'm a big fan of learning. And uh, this has been the driving force behind everything that I do. It's why I've changed jobs. So I used to uh, be a professor. And then I realized when you are a professor... Your job is to teach the same thing over and over again. And that, that's not why I got into education. I got into education because I enjoy learning new things. And that's what led me to leave academia to go into to, to polling. And so my job was to figure out what is it that uh, the public fe- feels and how do we shift those opinions by using psychological principles. Now, what, one of the things that is 
critical. And that, by the way, was the impetus for writing The Best Place to Work is my experience of being in the workplace after having studied what it means to become a top performer. And what I what I noticed is that all of the insights that psychologists know about how people become motivated and productive and engaged and creative, all those were being ignored by most workplaces. And learning is one of the most critical pieces because it's a basic human psychological need. So there are three basic human psychological needs, and we have decades of research supporting this. Those three needs are, number one, competence, feeling like you're good at what you do, but also having the ability to grow your competence on a regular basis. If you don't have that ability, you're not going to be fully engaged. So from a, from a psychological perspective, having, the, uh, having, your, having uh, your need for growth fulfilled is crucial. Just to round out that answer, the other two psychological needs are relatedness, so feeling connected to other people. And the yeah. third is autonomy, feeling like you have some say in what you do uh, at work. So from from a psychological perspective, learning is crucial, but there's more to it than that because there's actually research showing that one of the uh, one of the things that we can do to mitigate the effect of burnout and burnout is at an all time high right now, particularly as we're coming out from this pandemic, is is learn new things. And so what most people assume is that if I work less, I will eventually get rid of my burnout, but that tends not to work. And the reason it tends not to work is because when you commit to working less, you actually put more pressure on yourself to get more done in less time. And that actually counteracts the very thing you're trying to to solve for. Um, But learning new things tends to, to elevate your sense of energy because learning new things also raises your competence. It provides an, an immediate emotional boost. And so providing people with learning opportunities is crucial if you're trying to get them engaged and also preventing burnout. Yeah, it's, uh, and it's interesting, actually, because I was looking at some of the endorsers on the book, um, uh, Daniel Pink, Adam Grant, Marshall Goldsmith, Dory Clark. These are like leaders in their respective fields. Mm-hmm. And... You know, when you look at, I don't know, if you, if you look at some like, I, I don't know if you've studied any of them as individuals and, and what makes them successful using their reverse engineering, but I bet there's some commonalities between them. Oh, uh, without question. And in fact, approach. you mentioned Dory Clark. Dory has a course uh, on reverse engineering HBR articles because this is how she got into HBR. And so there are patterns in the hidden in these articles and in Decoding Greatness. I talk about patterns within articles, patterns within TED Talks, patterns within novels. and the first step to, you know, we have this, we have this idea that, that we, we need to get struck by a bolt of inspiration and insight, and that's how creativity happens. But creativity is a lot easier when you have a roadmap to get started. And that roadmap is hidden in the examples that you find impactful. It's like when you see people, I mean, people do things in threes. Got three, I mean, you, you did it then with the three psychological needs. I'm sure it wasn't deliberate, but three <laughs> things, whether it's politics, whether it's in business, whether it's good storytellers, they usually start with three things. Yeah, comedy, yeah. three things. If you'd say I've got 10 things, immediately people probably think, oh, God, that's a lot. Um, and you, you've got to remember them as well, I guess. But, but three things is quite a simple thing. I'm presuming there's a psycho, psycho, psych, psychology thing behind that as well. I think three is easier to remember. And it's also more, mem- you know, it's memorable. And it's also, uh, it, there are, I don't, I don't know the exact study behind this, but I there's no question that that is the magic number, particularly with insights or whenever you want people to be in, in some way moved. That seems to be the pattern. It's, it's it's interesting. Certainly, the more speeches I've done, the more I've sort of learned. And I, yeah, I've studied great. You know, sometimes you're at a conference, you think that person was really good. Yes. Why were they good? 
And then you right. think, okay, the topic was great. They were a great speaker. But why was it? Actually, it was quite simple. It was memorable because they didn't try and do too much. It wasn't too many yes. slides. It was, it's that mixture of different things, isn't it? And I want to applaud you for, for asking that question. That's kind of, if, if there's one thing I hope people take away from this is to consistently pause when they find encounter great examples and ask themselves, why was this impactful? And if you can do that on a regular basis, you're incorporating learning into your everyday life. You're getting that... Uh, that boost that prevents burnout, but also up-leveling your skills on a regular basis and not just treating learning as something that happens in cycles when I have some downtime to read books or when I take a course. It really needs to be part of your everyday approach to work because mm-hmm. it's it's the only path to succeed at this point where we're really encountering is something I discuss in the book, which is that we're, we're entering a phase of winner-take-all markets where uh, technology has made it a lot easier to find the best in a field and ask them to collaborate. And because we're in that state, that's great if you're a top performer, right? If you're if you're the best in your field, people are going to be coming to you all the time and asking you to work with you. But if you're not a top performer, the only way to get there is to up-level your skills on a consistent basis. Yeah, really important. Um, so why has learning through reverse engineering flown relatively under the radar until now? Well, you know, it, it is not a strategy that is often shared, but it's interesting because as I discuss this with podcasters and interviewers and, and really, you know, uh, as I was writing the book and sharing the idea with friends, the reaction I would get consistently was, you know, I've, I do that all the time, but I've never read a book about it. And it's, I think it's, it's, it's a strategy that people kind of stumble on themselves without ever having been taught to do it. And I think part of it has to do with the fact that we have this pervasive view that copying is wrong. And to a certain extent, obviously it is, but when you work in a creative field, uh, the last thing you want to be viewed as is, is unoriginal. And since the goal of reverse engineering is to uncover hidden patterns inside the work of others, there's a very genuine concern that if I do this, I'm going to be reduced to replicating someone else's work and becoming a hack. But this is why I think it's so valuable to have the research because what we look when you look at the research on what happens when people study someone else's work very carefully and even copy it, it turns out it makes them more creative, not less. And there's a study I talk about in Decoding Greatness uh, that was done at the University of Tokyo, where they had amateur artists come in and into the lab. They divided them into two groups. The first group was asked to create original art over three consecutive days. The second group was asked to create original art on the first day. On the second day, they were asked to copy the work of an established painter. And then on the third day, they were asked once again to produce original art. And then they had uh, uh, evaluators come in and, and assess who was the most creative on the final day of the, uh, of the program, the experiment. And what they found is that those who paused to copy the work of an established artist were more creative than the other group. And it wasn't by simply replicating the style of the established painter that whose work they copied. It was going off in a completely different direction. And what I find fascinating about that is the reason that the group that had copied became more creative is because when you're forced to slow down and to evaluate the choices of a master against your own inclinations, your own instincts... Just that very process of comparing ideas opens your eyes up to new possibilities that in your own work that you've been ignoring. And there's so much interesting uh, value in that in that perspective, which is, you know, if I if I pause to to look at the person who's the best in my field and uh, evaluate what what's happening in their emails, what's happening in their memos, what's happening in their articles, 
that's not going to reduce me into becoming a war, a hack. That's actually going to elevate my performance by opening my eyes up to new opportunities in my own work. And I suppose in reality, you'd probably like to study several people in, in the field who maybe there's three leaders in the field. Let's, let's, do, let's do it in threes. Uh, and you might take a, you might take inspiration from all three, but add a little mix of yourself. And then you get that creativity um, coming as well. And uh, as you said, compare that to, you know, the example of 10,000 hours. I can, that's making it simplistic, but it's, it's a much quicker way of doing it and probably a more fun way of learning as well. And that's how creativity happens. The last thing you want when you're aiming to be creative is to operate with intellectual blinders and shut yourself off in a dark room and hope that the creative idea happens. Creativity is about blending ideas. And I'll give you an example from the book that I think you'll appreciate, which has to do with Barack Obama. So Barack Obama, people don't realize this. He was, when he first entered politics, he was not a winner right out of the gate. In fact, he got trounced in his first race for Congress. He lost by a margin of more than two to one. And it was because the problem was, if, if you can believe it, was because he was a terrible speaker. And it was because he was a law school professor and he was used to lecturing students. And voters didn't appreciate being lectured to. And they let him know at the ballot box. And so he was taken aback. He, for a long time, considered leaving politics until one of his advisors suggested that he notice what pastors are doing in church. And so he started studying that process. And what he found is that there was a lot they were doing that he could incorporate into politics. He went into a completely different field and incorporate some of the techniques. And when he came back and ran again, he was now uh, using repetitions repetition. He was he was telling stories. He was modulating his tone. He was pausing in certain places for emphasis. And it transformed his speaking and elevated him into who, the man we know today. And what I love about that story is that it illustrates that he didn't find his talent. He didn't practice for 10,000 hours. He opened his eyes up to what was happening in a different field, found something impactful that he could incorporate into his own field and became a superstar. And, you know, obviously there's more to Barack Obama's story than just going to church, but there is something really powerful about opening your eyes up and questioning what is it that makes this impactful, even when it's something that's happening outside your field, because it's in doing that you, that you identify ingredients you can incorporate into your own field. Yes. Yeah, Cause obviously he became one of the, the greatest political orators of our time. You know, whatever your opinion of, of, of Barack Obama's policies, as a speaker, he was except, he's exceptional. Yeah, exactly right. Um, and, and, and there's a structure to his speeches that you can break down if you apply this approach. Like you could just read also, you know, one, one way of doing it. And I do this with fiction in, in uh, Decoding Greatness is you could take the speech and you can look at the emotional trajectory by simply labeling each paragraph for is it a positive emotion, a negative emotion, or a neutral emotion? And there's a pattern in his speeches that is repeated. And it's one that you could apply to your next speech if you just have this approach. And I suppose if you look at something like music, I mean, one of my sort of musical heroes is David Bowie, who is always considered very original and like a chameleon moved on to different things. But actually, he could tell he took inspirations from, from others each time he almost reinvented himself in the 1970s. So, you know, he was the, the star of glam rock and then he took the inspiration from the Philly sound, I think it was, and reinvented himself as a, a soul artist. He didn't do anything massively original, but it was the style maybe that he took to that, which became very popular, um, so that he was considered not to be, I don't know, he, he had credibility, even though he, he was a, a British guy um, singing Philadelphia and soul, you know, so it, yeah. 
but but to, obviously took inspiration from us and applied a formula that they'd done. But maybe that had his own formula as well that he that he mixed in with that. So it was original. And that evolution is itself formulaic, right? Because if you look at people like Elton John or uh, or Beyonce today, or even you know if you look at Billie Eilish over the last year. She's completely transformed. She's a completely different act right now. And it, it's by noticing that what makes other uh, musical acts successful and applying that approach to their own work. So it's the bands that don't evolve that disappear. Like I'll give you an example is, is the Killers. I, I know the Killers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're stagnant. They're not moving. And they, they need to if they're going to reclaim. Because there's, you know if you look at them playing live now and they've done a couple of shows over uh, the pandemic, they're still playing the songs they wrote 15 years ago. And it's, it, it, they need a kick in the pants. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> just, just your typical well, digital HR topic. Yeah, we don't usually talk about the killers, uh, uh, you know. But I, we we could go into their, their their sort of new order and cure pastiches. But I expect I expect we we're, we're on common ground there. But um, so let's let's bring it back to the organisational. So let's look at new skills, and this is a bit. I'd be interested to get your view view on this. So let's let's look at organisations. Who do you think is responsible for the development of new skills? You know, I don't like that word responsible, honestly, because it's almost suggests like it's a problem that needs to be solved. But yeah. the truth is, it's it's an untapped opportunity from both sides, right? So from an organizational perspective, if your folks are not learning, they are not going to be as fully engaged as they otherwise might be. And if they're not as fully engaged as they otherwise might be, they'll be looking for a new job. So it is a tool for retention more than anything else. And obviously higher productivity because the more skills your employees have, the better prepared they'll be to contribute. From an individual perspective, if you're not learning, you're not as um, as productive as you could be. You're not as happy as you could be. So I think we need to stop viewing, and I don't know, not accusing you of this, but I think that in a lot of I've done interviews where they're like, learning sounds hard. And, and it's like, I like that's the wrong perspective because yeah, learning can be hard, but it is a source of vitality. It is a source of um, when we feel like we're reaching our potential is when we're growing new skills, building our confidence. And so I, I've, I've, I think that it's, if you want to use the word responsibility, I guess I, I place it on both sides, but I, I view it as really an opportunity more than anything else. Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, personally, I like to learn something, at least one new thing every day, which is useful for for for, for work, but also for home, you know, you know, and work, home life. Why? If you're not learning, then you're standing still. You know, that's 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 my personal view. So I agree with you. I don't think it's just the organisation's responsibility or a learning department's responsibility. I think it's in the responsibility for every individual to to, to learn, and yeah. the organisation needs to create the environment for people to learn. I guess that around that, but right. And if you know, if you're listening to this podcast, then you probably appreciate that because hopefully, what you get out of this experience is something new that you can apply in your own work. And you know that that feeling is what makes this worthwhile. And I guess with the reverse engineering piece, it's not, don't just look at people in your own field. I think you gave the example with, with Barack Obama there, look at people in other fields and, 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 and take what you can learn from them and then apply it to, in, into your own, I guess. Without question. And it is, uh, it, it, one of the things I love about that approach is that it gives you license to just enjoy that guilty pleasure. So rather than feeling bad about the fact that you enjoy watching foreign films or listening to comedy shows, um, ask yourself what makes this powerful 
And then how do I apply this to what I'm working on? And invariably, you'll come up with more creative ideas than you would have had you just been focused on your own industry. A little known story for me is that um, I, I learned how to use social media by having a cricket blog. We're not going to talk about cricket, don't worry, because I know that's probably... Uh, <laughs> but I learned I learned the skills from, from that and then applied it in the to what I do now. I don't even so, know what that is. What is cricket? It's like baseball, slightly more sophisticated. Oh, that cricket, yeah. So, yeah. so you had a cricket blog. Oh, that's fascinating. So it's, yeah, you can take inspiration from, for, all, for all different places. Um, I want to explore... I'm going to get, definitely get onto the engagement piece in a minute, but the, the other side of the... One another side of the skills coin is often considered to be performance. Um, you know, what's your view on how we measure and understand performance and success today? And is is there a better way? Well, I think that they, we underutilize metrics, if you can believe it. I don't know if that's heretical to say on this podcast, but I, uh, <laughs> I'll tell you. I, you know, in the book, I talk about something called the scoreboard principle, and the scoreboard principle simply comes down to if you want to get better at anything, the first step is to figure out the points you're trying to score and monitor them regularly. And so we know from the research that simply keeping track of your performance is going to lead to improvement. So if you want to drink more water, monitor your water intake every day. If you want to lose weight, keep track of your calorie consumption. If you want to focus more at work, monitor how many minutes you spend of uninterrupted work. And it's an incredibly powerful tool. And there's an evolutionary reason for why we're drawn to numbers. Uh, you know, in the past, being fixated on numbers actually helped us survive. So if you uh, were sensitive to size, for example, then you pursued food sources that were larger than those that weren't. You had an assessment of competing tribes and whether you should mess with them or ally with them or run away. That information was vital. And so we're naturally drawn to metrics and you can harness them in a way that actually helps you elevate your performance. And the first step is to figure out what is it that makes me successful on an everyday level? What goals am I trying to achieve? And then working backwards, reverse engineering your future self to keep track of those crucial metrics. And within most organizations, mo you know, the, the average employee has no idea what points they're even trying to score, let alone how well they're doing at them. So in the book, I talk about if you compare your performance on the average pitch meeting this year versus last year, are you doing better or worse? Most people have no idea how many emails, how effective were your emails compared to last year? You know, it, it, genuinely, people have no idea. And I think if we, if we all had our individualized scoreboards that we crafted on our own, so we feel like there's a sense of autonomy there, we would be, we would be a lot more effective at work. And a great example of how we're solving for the wrong problem that don't actually help us score any points is meetings. I think meetings are a crutch for in a lot of organizations, not all organizations, and certainly meetings have their value when done correctly. But what happens, I think, in a lot of organizations is meetings are an excuse for not reaching a decision. And so if I feel like there's a meeting on the calendar, I don't have to actually take responsibility for reaching a decision. And among newly minted entrepreneurs, there's a real... Um, hatred of meetings. I mean, it's really kind of, it's physical, like it's a revulsion. And it's because they realize that meetings don't contribute to their bottom line. But among employees, it's a way of taking cover. And if I think if, if there was more clarity on what it is that's required to achieve your next raise or your next promotion, I bet we would see far fewer meetings. Yeah, yeah I'm not fond of too many meetings. Either. And I think one of the challenges organizations have had in the last 18 months in the pandemic is the number of meetings seems to have gone up and the amount of focus time has gone down. And there's enough studies out there telling us about the importance of focus time to actually getting things done and, and achieving 
both on an individual level, but also on an organisational level as well, as well, as you say, getting to decisions and getting the work done. So, um, yeah, I think we'd probably share quite similar things around meetings on, on that. Um, I, I'd, interesting, I'd, I'd love to touch on your, um, I'll come, come back to the engagement piece, I think, in a minute, but particularly if we think about the context of the last 18 months, obviously the best place to work um, was about creating an extraordinary workplace. The concept of an extraordinary workplace, I guess, in terms of a physical perspective, has changed since 2014 and because of the last 18 months and, and will likely change moving forward. I think it's interesting the number of companies who still seem stuck in the old world when it comes to decide, putting down these announcements saying, we're going to go back to the office four days a week and on this day, on these three days or four days, everyone needs to be in the office. And it's, I think the world's change i might be wrong but i think the world's changed so i'd be interested to get your perspectives on on how you create an extraordinary workplace in a hybrid world for example well you know it's been a it's been a dreadful time obviously for yeah. so many but if there's one positive outcome that's come out of the last 18 months is i think there's a far greater realization about the value of flexibility uh, for managers, I think, in part because they've noticed it for themselves. And so I saw a study recently that said that 33% of workers have been consistently taking naps every day. Uh, they're now taking walks. They're going out for runs. And so I think there's kind of like, there's really two things that are happening here. Um, there's, there's, when I say flexibility, there's this freedom of location. Uh, and, and what I think there's been a realization among many is that um, productivity doesn't tank when you let people choose where they're working. In fact, in many cases, it goes up and it's because of that sense of autonomy. So when I feel like I'm working how I best work, I can do a better job for you. And that was a tough argument to make before the pandemic, before everyone was forced into it. But I think right now there's a little bit more openness to that perspective. The other thing is that um, in terms of the connection between the physiological and the mental is, is I think th that, that, that also has been something that people are more aware of is that if you allow your body to operate at its best, your mental performance will skyrocket. And so napping is crucial to that. Um, movement is, ex is is crucial to that. I, I talk. I had an article in my first book came out called uh, Regular Exercise is Part of Your Job. And uh, that ran in the Harvard Business Review. And it, it's one of those articles that went viral. And it really is um, something that I incorporate into my perspective where my, if I don't exercise, I'm not going to sleep as well. And if I'm not going to sleep as well, tomorrow's performance will not be as great. And so I don't feel guilty when it's time for me to leave the office, to go to the gym or go for a swim or play pickleball. Do you know pickleball? I don't know pickleball. No. Okay. So you, I'll, you'll teach me about cricket. I'll teach you about pickleball. <laughs> pickleball, pickleball is like if, if uh, ping pong and tennis had a baby so oh, Okay. playing with a wiffle ball and a paddle and it's a smaller court, but anyway, it's big in America right now. So, um, so, you know, when it's time for me to go and meet my friends at the end of the day and, and it's, I, there are a few more emails to write. Like I, I don't, I used to just stay in the office and get my inbox to zero. I don't do that anymore because I realize it's an exercise as an investment in my future performance. And to the point about meeting friends, you know, relations, relationships are also a vital factor that contributes to building a great place to work. And that's another element that I think has been highlighted over the course of this pandemic is that those, you know, sometimes you need something, something that you love to go away for a little while before you realize what you had. And that's the case with relationships. And I think that the, the reason that, and people don't often realize this is the reason that 
relatedness is so vital to being a better performer at work is that it's that in those connections that you actually have greater focus. So if you don't, for example, know that you're fitting in with other people in your office, you're going to be paying more attention to does this person like me? Does this person respect me? Why did they leave me off that email? But to the extent that you feel valued and appreciated, you actually have more bandwidth for doing your job than worrying about those relationships. You also get more uh, honest feedback and you get better support from those around you. And so those relationships are really crucial. So I think as we're going back and I, uh, to, to, I don't know if we're going to ever go back to what we had before where we were at the office for, in some cases, 60 hours a week. But I, I do think that there, th- those two takeaways I'm heartened by, I think more and more leaders are starting to recognize the importance of uh, giving people some freedom, allowing them to exercise over the course of the workday and um, investing in those relationships, because really those are the tools that are vital to retention and top performance. And it's interesting, isn't it? Those, I mean, again, we've, we've only been in this pandemic, well, let's hope we're not in it for too much longer, but we've been in the pandemic for 18 months and some of the studies that have been done are showing that those organisations that A, care about their employees and ask them how they're feeling and, and they respond to that, that trust, autonomy, as you said, productivity they're seeing going up. They're also seeing engagement going up. I mean, I, I'm, I'm concerned that you might have to rename your company at some point. We've seen engagement going up during the pandemic and I'm hoping now that, 80, less than 80% are disengaged and, and, and the number getting engaged is, is higher. Obviously, you've talked about some of the, the ways in which companies can, can, can actually ad- address that, you know, autonomy obviously being one of them, relatedness is another, and the competence around the whole learning piece. You know, what, what are the other areas you feel that organisations could, could do to, to really improve engagement um, in, their, in their companies? Well, we talked about the scoreboard principle, and I think that that is a component that allows people to um, both monitor their progress, but also invest in the right things. And so often it's just the exercise of taking a, you know, a couple hours and think about, in order for me to have a great year, what would I need to achieve? And then how do I score that on a daily basis? Uh, learning, obviously, is another component. Um, it really comes down to the three basic psychological needs, so autonomy, competence, and relatedness. So the scoreboard principle comes down to... Um, competence. Uh, and then we, we talked about the physiological that that also contributes to the autonomy and the competence. And if you're doing it correctly with um, with the engagement. So uh, it would be rather with the relatedness. So uh, I think ultimately, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We don't. We just have to make sure that we're providing for the basic human psychological needs because you're not, nothing is going to happen that is going to completely uh, uh, render e- any of them obsolete. It's just a matter of how we feed those basic human psychological needs. We've got to the last question, um, and this is one we're asking everyone on 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 the show. Uh, you might end up repeating some of this or summarizing some of the stuff you said on this one. But what is the value of measuring skills data, and how should companies approach it? Well, so we talked about the scoreboard principle, and I want to give you a story that I think um, really. Uh, illuminate some of the value here. So again, the scoreboard principle is measuring the factors on which you're trying to improve on and then keeping track of those on a daily basis. And one company that has done that extraordinarily well is the Ritz-Carlton hotel chain. And uh, in the book, I talk about how it is that they got to where they are. And one of the metrics that they are um, fanatical about is net promoter scores. And I'm sure everyone listening to this, if you're, if you're in the podcast, you're, you know what that is. But just to, to illuminate it for those who are not familiar or just want to refresh, 
uh, Net Promoter is the likelihood of a guest recommending your hotel to a friend or a colleague. And the reason they're so gung-ho about that metric is because they realize that it's not just about having customer satisfaction, which you really want, is you want people raving about your hotel to their friends and colleagues, because that is what is going to lead to more bookings in the future. And in doing that, in having, in collecting net promoter scores, uh, uh, as soon as customers leave uh, the hotel, um, and and you know keeping the entire team uh, uh, monitoring those numbers on a daily basis, one of the things that the Ritz Carlton has discovered is that what really drives that metric is solving for employees, uh, not not just their expressed requests, but their unexpressed needs. And so, uh, what I mean by that is. And I give the example in the um, a variety of examples based on some of, some of which are based on my kids' experience at the hotel. Uh, you know, a, a an expressed request is: Does the hotel have a uh, cafe? And uh, the answer to that is, you know, yes. Technically, the answer is yes. But if you're solving for unexpressed needs, what you might say is: It does. Would you like me to make your reservation, or would you like me to text you a menu? That's solving for something I haven't asked for, but it's an underlying. It, it addresses an underlying concern. In the case of my kids, my son lost his goggles and at the pool, and he went up to the person uh, working there and he said, "Hey, have you seen my goggles?" And they said, uh, "No, I haven't. Would you like me to get you a new pair?" And they, he's, he was, uh, I think, five at the time. And they took him to the store and they bought him new goggles. And it's because every employee at the hotel has a tiny budget that they don't have to ask for permission for that they can just address a customer concern. And all of that came from understanding and valuing uh, the metrics and the metrics of net promoter score. So, to the extent that you're monitoring metrics, you're able to identify drivers that may not be obvious, but that you can control. And so those are leading indicators that you can then start to tinker with in order to drive your ultimate outcome. And so I can't, you know, I can't say enough about the value of metrics. There's an entire chapter of on it in Decoding Greatness because it's the first step to getting better at anything is identifying your metrics. Well, metrics is certainly something that will uh, appeal to a lot of the listeners of, of this podcast, given that a lot of them are from the field of people analytics and, and HR, where obviously we have a lot of metrics. And I, I love that example because um, it's a great example of autonomy as well, by giving employees that autonomy to, to make those decisions um, by giving them that budget to, 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 to delight guests. Exactly right. And how many conversations are you saving, right? Like think about that within your own company. If you just allowed people a tiny budget to solve problems, uh, you know, if you're a, a manager, how many times are people emailing you? Can I can I purchase this transcript? Can I get this course? Can I download this book? Like just give them a, a tiny budget. It empowers them, feeds their autonomy and improves their competence. And I bet they'll be careful, but people will be careful about spending it as well. So you know, they'll, they'll make the decision that they think is right for them, right for the companies. Absolutely. And if you're not, if you're not confident about that, then, you know, set aside a, a half an hour every quarter to review spending. And if someone's not doing it correctly, you can solve for it then. But, you know, for the first three months, I think it's worth taking that risk. Ron, it's been fantastic to have you on the Digital HR Leaders podcast. How can listeners stay in touch with you, follow you on social media and find out more about your work? Well, if you're interested in Decoding Greatness, the best place to get it is decodinggreatnessbook.com. It will uh, enable you to get the book, but also get a bunch of free resources, including a course uh, that comes free with the book. Uh, If you're interested in learning more about Ignite 80, it's ignite80.com, I-G-N-I-T-E 80.com. And you can also find me online at ronfriedmanphd.com. Ron, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. I'm going to go off and do some reverse engineering now um, to improve my skill set. Thank you very much. 
My pleasure, David. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. You can subscribe via your podcast app of choice. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show on your podcast app and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make the podcast. If you haven't already, do check out the My HR Future Academy at myhrfuture.com. It's a learning experience platform for HR professionals looking to get certified in people analytics, digital HR and workforce planning. You can also subscribe to my weekly newsletter by going to the My HR Future website. That's all for this episode, but please make sure you tune in next week when we'll be speaking to Tershan Wiedenhoff about how the shift to agile ways of working has shaped the work of HR and people analytics at Rabobank. So don't miss that one. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and I'll see you next time.